when we spoke, one of the things that I remember very clearly is the fact that you grew up in the Bay Area, you went to Gunn, you went to Stanford, and you actually told me that Gunn was harder than Stanford. What was kind of what was kind of growing up like for you at least? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, Gunn is known for being a really intense school. And, you know, some people might argue that's the school itself. I think that a big part of it is that, you know, most of the families that live in the area have been very academically focused, you know, historically, right? I think out of my graduating class, 31 of the people graduating had Stanford uh, faculty parents, right? So you have people who are deep into academics who have been, you know, very successful in academics. And I think it really does play out by making it an intense environment, you know? Um, so yeah, very, very intense from that perspective. Um, there was a balance, right? So I played lacrosse growing up, you know, I played baseball and soccer a little bit. I was never like a star athlete, but I definitely, you know, did enjoy playing sports. Um, but yeah, I would say the majority of the focus in school was, you know, getting A's kind of doing well and, uh, getting ready for that next step. And a, a funny story, actually, my, my stepmom found an, an essay I wrote in eighth grade that talked about how excited I was to go to college because if once I go to college, I will have made it and I will have, you know, left behind the stress of needing to go to college. And I think that that feeling really exemplified what it was like growing up there. If I remember as well, your parents were in medicine. I think they're physiotherapists. Like, did that have any influence in terms of what you wanted to do after school? Yeah. So my dad is a cardiologist. My mom is a radiologist. She's retired now, but okay. Way more uh, sophisticated. My bad. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's fine. Um, but they both were professors at Stanford. And, um, one of the things they really pushed, or at least my dad really pushed me to do is to go into medicine. Um, his imagination of my life was to go into medicine. I actually worked in his lab for a number of years, both in high school and in college to kind of partially make money, but partially it was super cool, like doing, you know, actual biology and stuff. Um, what I found very quickly by my sophomore year in college was that medicine felt like a lot of memorization. And I found that for computer science, I could stay up all night working on a problem set. And I liked that way more than memorizing a bunch of stuff. So I gave up the idea of pre-med pretty early. Like, did you know that you wanted to start something yourself? in the realm of computer science? Or was it, I'm going to go to Google, one of these big tech names? What, what was kind of that like for you? Yeah. I mean, my career was, was actually um, really focused on small companies early on. So my first job out of college, I was the first engineer at a search engine that was you know getting started to get, kind of date myself a little bit. That was back when search engines were still a thing that got started up. Um, you know, I went from there to be you know the third or fourth engineer at another company doing some ML stuff, and then maybe the fifth engineer at another uh, small company. Um, and you know, I actually ended up starting a company back in 2014 with some college friends focused around social media, like photo editing, video editing, things like that. And I loved it. You know, I really liked the idea of building something from the ground up. Um, you know, after that experience, I ended up at Twitch, which was a great experience learning both bigger companies and learning about how to build things that are a bigger scale. But got a little bit stymied where at big companies, you spend a lot of time planning and not a lot of time building. So I knew that I wanted to get back to building. So I started Debrief actually with a, a friend I met at Twitch. And our goal really was to, to build and to make a real company, like start something from the ground up and turn it into something real. Um, let's talk about your company now, though. Like, What kind of prompted the pivot? You guys are still in the early days in a lot of respects, but as well, you mentioned you just closed a big financing round. So 
you know, moments like that are huge. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. You know, so we started debrief. Our, our, our mission was to cut down on repetitive meetings that you have at big companies, you know, so we were using sort of ML and AI to extract information from companies' meetings to get these large companies to stop scheduling so many meetings. And interestingly enough, during the pandemic, it actually worked decently well. Like we were growing, we saw some usage, you know, we really actually thought we had something. And what happened at the end of last year was we started seeing churn. We started seeing our pipeline dry up. And our hypothesis became that as companies went back to hybrid work, the hair on fire problem of too many meetings became like the 20th problem on their list. So we knew we needed to pivot and we weren't sure if we were going to do a soft pivot or a hard pivot. Um, we did a bunch of research and really understood the options that were out there and just became enamored of the idea of Web3. It was something both my co-founder and I were interested in, something that we'd been playing around in for a couple of years. So we started building, you know, like builders do, and quickly discovered that there was a lack of infrastructure tooling in Web3. Anybody who's building a Web3 product needs to build their own auth stack from scratch. You know, there just aren't a lot of solutions out there. So when we talked to a number of people about what we were thinking, we got just amazing reception into something that they were facing this problem. This is a real problem for them. So we decided, you know what, this is it. And we launched uh, sort of our initial product back in May and had, you know, some really great reception, mostly from the YC community where we're a, you know, a part of that. So we've been able to kind of have some warm intros through that and so on and so forth. Things are going uh, well with it too, because what's happening is we're speeding up people's roadmaps and we're decreasing the investment they have to spend on building sort of what we call like boilerplate features, like almost the things that you have to have, the table stakes. And they get to focus on the differentiating factors of what makes people want to buy their product. What exactly did those two things look like? If you could share a few details um, and provide some advice as to maybe when to pivot, when to stay on the track you're on, like what were some signals that prompted you to make that change? Yeah. So, I mean, pivoting is really hard. There's actually a really good YouTube video by Dalton Caldwell out of YC talking about when to pivot and sort of what to think about during a pivot. Um, so I would definitely say I'm not the expert. He is a much bigger expert than I am. But I will say that making that choice is not easy. There's a sunk cost fallacy for sure. And well, whether it's sunk cost or not, but there is a approach of I've spent so much time in this realm, why would I give it up? And effectively, the way we looked at it was partially the idea of could we see ourselves slogging through the muck for the next 12 months in this particular area? And I think for us, like, the answer was decidedly no. We've been working with a sales coach. We've been building this business for almost two years at that point, And we just saw things getting worse rather than getting better. And it was a pretty clear choice for us that we had to change something, but what what to was kind of the big question. And so the way that we looked at our sort of options were effectively brainstorming, where is there both product market fit and founder market fit, right? We wanted to make sure it was something that we were good at as well as something that the market needed. So that research involved, to your point, building prototypes, understanding what people were building, talking to many companies. Like we probably talked to maybe 40 companies in the space during this time to, tr to truly understand what their issues were and begin to build that sort of Venn diagram overlap of what our skills were and what their issues were. 100%. And to people listening, let that be a lesson. Like you really need to take the time to A, figure out when to pivot and B, it's another whole story in terms of actually getting the information from other players in the space. As we have 
had talked or as I had sent the question over, Web3 has gotten bigger and bigger. Um, it's become popular and there have been a lot of great companies that have come out with it, but also a lot of gimmicks, I think. A lot of, you know, there's a couple examples of like scams when it comes to coins and things like that as well. And I mean, that can be a little bit hard when it comes to raising and convincing people to use your software. So what would you say was the hardest part? And then how have you kind of adopted into the new space and to the competition that already exists? Yeah. Well, the hardest part for raising was we started our fundraise three days before the Terra crash happened. And the Terra crash was this you know chain that was built on top of an algorithmic stablecoin. Um, $60 billion in value disappeared in the course of about four days. Um, it was akin to the Lehman Brothers crash of 2008. Like it was that level of value disappearing. And what happened after that, you know, obviously we saw a ripple effect in many other areas, Celsius, and then also in like the stock market as well, is that investors who had been in a very much like founder driven market where you could kind of set your price and people were just throwing money around, it kind of actually got flipped to the point where investors now had a lot of the, you know, say and the power. Um, and you know that's how the the game goes. It's going to be on both sides of the scale, depending on where things are and how much dry powder is out there, and so on and so forth. So fundraising was a real challenge for us because we talked to a number of people who were really interested in what we're doing, but the timing just wasn't right. And so it led to um, I, I, it was difficult, but it was more demoralizing, right? The idea of just hearing so many no's in a row is really demoralizing. Um, when you finally break through and find, we actually found the greatest investors in Audacious, and I can't I can't say enough great things about them. If you have a chance to work with Knuckle, like he's absolutely fantastic. But truly, like the process of getting there was a real, real slog, and it was it's difficult. It really is kind of like a depressing time when you're just hearing no after no after no. As far as adapting, you know, to the space, there are always, there's always going to be competition, whether that's established competition or whether that's, you know, newcomers just like you. And it basically just kind of comes down to this game of make sure you're providing value to your customers and make sure that you're constantly listening and understanding what people actually need. You know, you really do have to spend a lot of your time talking to your customers, your prospective customers, and really understanding the space because it's not just technology, right? As an engineer, you think you could build a great piece of technology, it would sell itself. And it turns out, I'd say engineering is 25% of a company. 75% is go to market, selling, marketing, finance, like all of those pieces actually are a huge part of what makes a, com a great company, a great company. How do you become a good listener for customer feedback? I would say that there's a great book called The Mom Test that really exemplifies how to do it. Um, effectively what the mom test talks about and it, the, the joke is sort of like if you went and talked to your mom and you said hey i'm building this product and it does this she's always going to tell you oh that sounds great of course i would use that and i would pay for it but truly like that response is just to not let you down and everybody to some degree is like that everybody has social norms where they're not going to actually answer the questions that you want so it's hyper important to talk to people and ask them questions about how they do things and really understand not about how they'll use your product, but how they're solving problems. And you might be able to hone that question toward the direction you're going, but sometimes in customer conversations, I'm talking about things that are so unrelated to what I'm doing, but it's still useful in understanding what the big problems they're facing are. So it's, I guess it's, a, it's an idea of making sure that you are truly understanding them rather than getting them to respond to what you're saying if that makes sense. 
Has it ever, as, from an engineering's perspective, engineer's perspective, is it difficult to make that transition between like the complex language that is code that is the stack to some guy like me <laughs> that's never that barely knows what like Java or COBOL is and stuff I like, like that? You know of COBOL that that's impressive in and of itself. So uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would actually say um, I think about it the other way, which is the technical side for me is very straightforward because there generally is a right answer, right? There is, when you get something working, it's just working, but people are really complex and there is no right answer and it's different from person to person. You know, as I made the transition from being an individual contributor in my life to being more of a manager, you begin to realize that when you're dealing with people, you're dealing with far more complex problems than, you know, how do I reverse a linked list or do something technical because there is no right answer. And you're dealing with, um, effectively infinite problem spaces as opposed to a very finite problem space. So yeah, it is incredibly difficult. You know, I love working with people and I love people, but I'll tell you what, it is far easier to sit in a dark room and write code if I were, you know, if, if all else was equal. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Well, getting back to that question set, what do you think is a misconception about Web3, given that it is such a new space? I I think the biggest misconception in my mind is people looking at the space as it just being about a, one particular thing. You know, like when you ask people at Web3, they'll say, oh, that's pictures of monkeys that sell for $100,000. That's so stupid, you know? Or, oh, that's just for trading currency to avoid taxes. Or, you know, if you're maybe a little bit older, oh, that's for, you know, buying drugs on a, you know, drug marketplace with Bitcoin. You know, it was like, that is what people view this concept of crypto or Web3 as, is just a single idea. And I'm constantly reminded of that David Letterman, you know, Bill Gates interview from 95, where, you know, Bill Gates is describing the internet and David Letterman is like, well, I have a radio. Why would I need that? Or, you know, I've got a phone. Why would I need this? And it's so funny because looking at it now, you're like, wow, how did he not get it? And I think that's kind of where we are with Web3. We might be totally wrong, right? We could be 100% wrong and it ends up not being sort of anything, but I truly think there's a huge number of uses when you add decentralization and ownership kind of to the mix of what you can do on the web. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the hardest parts is what you just said, getting through all those no's because, man, it feels really shitty to be told no all the time. And I would love for you to talk about, you know, maybe some of the things that you did when it came to your lifestyle or your habits to get through that, because there is like the mental and physical health component of it and the endurance. Um, and then talk to you about the investors that you closed the round with. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to maintain a positive attitude. I think when you're consistently facing, you know, any form of adversity, um, and so I don't want to speak to just fundraising. You know, people face adversity every day and it's not just fundraising. But in the context of fundraising, which I can't speak to, you know, you can't add a lot of variables to your life where you might face more adversity. So as an example, during the period of time that I fundraise, and now I've gone through this three times in my life, I generally am not writing code during that time. And part of that is because, you know, you're focused on other things, you don't have as much time. But interestingly, at least for me, when I get stuck on a problem, that's a huge blow to my morale because I just, all I can think about is how do I solve this technical problem? And I know I will at some point, but there's always that voice, you know, that imposter voice inside your head of like, well, maybe I can't solve this one. And if you add that to the constant barrage of just getting no's left and right, 
it actually makes your ability to be confident that much less. And when you're talking to people, confidence is probably a large percentage of what gets people interested in what you're working on. If you walk in a little bit deflated and a little bit, you know, kind of pulled back, you're not going to drive as much excitement basically. So that's hyper important. Exercise, you know, making sure you take breaks, making sure you have a life outside of work. Like spending time with my wife, for instance, is very important to me. It makes me happy and, you know, it's a good break and everything else. Um, but yeah, finding that balance is, is really, really key. Um, yeah. What is something that you're passionate about that you probably don't get asked about a lot? Well, you know, the thing that I'm really good at is really hyper-focusing on a hobby for about three months and then really kind of putting it on the back burner. But uh, a thing I really like to do is flying. Like I, uh, you know, I, I like to fly single engine planes and um, that whole approach uh, started interestingly because I got afraid of flying all of a sudden. I had a bad, you know, commercial air flight and all of a sudden I couldn't get on a plane without my heart racing at 200 beats per minute. So I decided to get over that by going through flight training, getting a pilot's license and now it's actually great. Oh dude, that's awesome. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on some of the regional air travel companies that are coming out as kind of a side question? I think it's pretty interesting. You know, one of the the problems that started popping up around these is they started employing pilots who um, did not have the requisite training for being what's called an air uh, an air transport pilot, which is a particular level of a pilot's license. Um, the way that you can do that is you can legally fly people so long as they're not paying you beyond the percentage of the gas that they're using to fly somewhere, and it actually led to some really dangerous situations. Um, so from a safety perspective, I'm maybe a little bit concerned in that you have to find pilots and there's a pilot shortage right now. Yeah. So I don't know how that's going to play out. That's but, a fair point. You know, outside of that, I think it's fantastic from a consumer perspective. You know, When it comes to some of the philosophies that you have, I was insanely impressed at what we talked about when we got coffee. You said there were, again, if I recall correctly, it was, I think it was like five salient traits in order to have kind of this meaningful, fulfilled life, just for the audience. Can you go over that one more time? Yeah. And I'm going to forget them, which is hilarious. But um, there's this framework that Adam Bosworth, who is a tech luminary, shared with me a few years ago. When you're picking what you want to do in your career, there are these drivers that kind of guide everybody's decision-making. And they all start with F, which makes it really easy to remember, except I'm going to forget them. So they're fame, fortune, fun, family, force. And there's a handful of others that I don't include in the, outside of those five. Like for instance, one is faith actually. Like for some people, faith really does matter to them. But for picking a career in tech, I don't usually bring that one up. Of those, uh, you can kind of optimize for two. And the idea is all five of them sound very, very great. And actually whittling those down to two really can help you pick what you want to be working on at the moment. So as an example, you know, if your goal in life is to maximize fortune and force, where force is sort of a, you're changing the way people look at the world, or you're making like a massive change in something. And, you know, fortune being maybe you're 10xing your net assets, right? So that might be different for different people, but it will have a massive impact in your life then that's going to specify a very sp particular type of role that you want to optimize for, right? Like going and working in a large company, unlikely you're going to have that force aspect. You might have the fortune, again, depending on where you are in your career, but you're not going to have that force. You know, you're probably going to have more of the 
the fortune and maybe the fame, right? If you think about fame and like working on Google Chrome, the thing you use get used by a billion people. Like that's a level of fame that is tough to find elsewhere, you know? Let's talk about the Twitch days as well. One of the things was is that it was more about proving that you were doing the work versus showing substantial progress or innovative thinking on the work itself. And given that you're starting this company now, to build a culture and to build a company yeah, around that I mean, is actually like really the way hard. That I is there a way to balance those the, tangible the objectives with like how much time some of the things that are a bit harder call it like research to measure? And development or product development or you know engineering or whatever it happens to be versus how much time are you yeah spending on research how much time are you spending on growing the company or focused on particular metrics um, there's a level that I would say requires a balance, right? Like to your point earlier about not wanting, you can't do, I forget exactly what you said, but you can't sort of do infinite work on infinite things, I think was the the term that you, or the, so you, you do, you do have to pick and choose and you have to prioritize. And the scary part about it is that you don't know, and you won't know probably for months, if not years, if yeah, exactly. picking is correct. Exactly. Um, there's a great, philosophy called infinite games or like the infinite game mindset. And it's something that I really try to work on and remembering that if you live in a world where you win the game you're playing solely by continuing to play the game, then that's an absolutely fantastic life to live. Like love is an infinite game. You win the game of love by continuing to play and stay in love while a football game is very much a finite game. You win and somebody else loses and that's how it is. If can frame the way that you approach your company not as we need to hit MRR goal by August or I need to prove that I you know put in my work on this project by you know 2 p.m. tomorrow or something that's a really stressful life that is kind of uncontrollable stress because you're either going to win or you're going to lose but if you focus on that as an infinite game I, I find that a far more approachable way to play as well as a much more rewarding way to play. Yeah, 100%. And one thing that I've been really impressed by just with the startup community in general is their tendency to not think of things in like zero-sum ways. Is that something that you could say has played into your thinking as well? Or perhaps how do you think about that? Yeah, no, I mean, there's always going to be some competition. And, and at a certain point, you are competing directly with somebody for market ownership or a customer or whatever. And when you do lose a customer, I guess that is a finite game to some degree, um, yeah, it doesn't feel good. Um, but you know, working with some investors through this fundraising process who weren't from like this, the tech sector, they were from different sectors. I found a very different environment. I found this environment of, I need to win if you win, not, I'm just looking for what's best for you because we're playing a longer game. So, hey, I'm making this intro and in return, you're going to pay me or you're going to give me something for making this intro, which is a very strange way that I haven't really spent a lot of time in that world. So I can say with great confidence that the tech world is much more just about the long game of being like, I'm going to make this intro because I want to establish this relationship and build this community. And that's what we do in this community. I think that I, I love that. I think that's a very fantastic um, way to live your life. If there was one piece of advice that Maybe you received in the early days. Would you be able to share it? Like, what was a really transformative piece of wisdom that you got when you were younger? 
I think one of the best pieces of advice is if you don't know what you're doing or you feel like you don't know what you're doing, imagine somebody who you idolize and who you think does know what they're doing and just mimic what you think they would do, right? There's a particular person I always think of when I don't know what I'm doing and I just say, okay, well, what would he do? And I would just, I generally try and emulate that and whether or not it actually makes you do the right thing, it gives you the confidence that you're doing what you want to be doing. Well, a final question. If people want to get in touch with you, if people want to get more familiar with their company, with your company, excuse me, where can they find it? Yeah, so we're slash off. Um, slash off.xyz is our is our homepage. You can follow us on Twitter at slash off. And I'm uh, Ned Roxon on Twitter, just at Ned Roxon. Um, yeah, love to love to chat about anything Web3. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Okay, we'll leave it here. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Cassius.